Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we'll be continuing our series entitled Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled Diverting to Egypt. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld. I have long been fascinated by the account of Jesus calming the storm. Now, I know that the main point of the account is to give us a view of Jesus who is Lord of all, that all of nature responds to his command. And yet, as I have reflected on that account over the years, I have reflected on the truth that if Jesus is Lord of nature, then the very storm that the disciples found themselves in was the Lord's storm, for surely he deliberately brought them into that storm. And and if that's so, it seems to me that our Lord deliberately brings us into his storms as well. I wonder what the storms could possibly be for. After all, we've all felt storms in our lives that threaten our undoing. Why would a loving Lord deliberately bring us to a place where the waves threaten to drown us? And yet, it's in just such places where we begin to learn the lessons of faith or trust in God. Were we always at ease? Were nothing to threaten us? Would it be that all of our plans succeeded and all men and women spoke well of us constantly? Would it be that tragedy never came near our house? Well, then I fear that none of us would trust in God at all. We would foolishly conclude that it was our good planning, or even if we didn't, still we would not know what it is to trust in him utterly. And Abraham, or at this point, Abram, the father of those who believe, is thrust very early onto a sinking vessel. He has arrived in the land that God directed him to. Furthermore, God has now told him that his offspring would inherit the land. And so he does what you and I would most likely do. He's traveling through the land, moving from the north, from where he has arrived, and he's steadily going south all the way to the Negev, that is the, the desert region. He wants to see what the land actually looks like. And it's here that we notice that Abram encounters an unexpected problem. I'm reading Genesis 12, verses 10 to 16. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And notice, if you will, how circumstances beyond Abram's control lead him to a series of crises. Let's look at each crisis and then examine how Abram responds. But as we do, please take note of the fact that were it not for the fact that Abram was following God's directive, these problems would never have developed. Therefore, we must assume that it was God who was leading him there in the first place. It was God's storm after all. So let's imagine the scene. Famines in that area always came from one of three sources. One was a lack of rain, the second is locusts, the third is war. 
One would imagine that locusts or war would have been mentioned if they had been the cause of the famine, so it's very natural to assume that the cause is the lack of rain. We do know that Genesis 42 records an unusual famine, one so severe that it affects Egypt, but this would have been a very rare occurrence indeed. Egypt as a whole remained immune from prolonged periods of drought, but that was not so in Israel. Several of those are recorded in the Bible, including the one mentioned in the book of Ruth and the reason why Naomi's family moved to Moab in the first place. Also, there's the long drought during the time of Elijah and so forth. In fact, Moses, when he was leading Israel into the promised land, was told that the situation between Egypt and Israel was very different. Egypt could always rely on the annual inundation of the Nile. Israel was entirely dependent on annual rainfall. It seemed that God had intended it this way. You know, on the one hand, we might not be surprised by the drought. After all, Abram was making his way south and he had come to the Negev, which is a desert region. But as he encounters the famine, we can only imagine the danger. At first, we imagine him losing cattle and with that, the ability to feed them. If he starts eating all the cattle, he destroys his own future. He also has responsibility towards his servants and to their future as well. Then Abram made a decision. We're not told why he didn't go north, back to the center of Canaan, or even up into Galilee. And there was the famine there as well. You know, perhaps, indeed, that's a very likely scenario. But whatever the reason, shortly after entering the promised land, he leaves it again. He's a man quickly defeated. His pilgrimage seems to end in failure. He goes to Egypt where, unlike Canaan, the land of promise, he's going to a land where famine is rare. And in this, he seems to mistrust God. But there is more. When Abram reaches Egypt, the three pyramids of Giza had already been built. They would have been about three to 400 years old then. The oldest of the pyramids would have been some 600 years old. Already Egypt was an established and an ancient culture. Abram went because he was used to great civilizations. He went because Egypt represented peace and prosperity and stability. He went because he could feed his cattle and he was able to make a living. Canaan, the land of promise, was a fickle land and there he felt vulnerable. But Egypt was the land that provided him with all that people look for, and that is security. But there was a problem. A couple of decades before he got there, Egypt had been invaded by infiltrators from Asia. And so anyone from Asia was viewed with suspicion. And so Abram came to see that Egypt represented a stable, monocultural civilization with a deep suspicion of foreigners, especially from the East. And he went from fear to panic. He looked at a 65-year-old wife and said, she's gorgeous. I'm going to be killed and she's going to be taken into a harem. And by the way, this selling of Sarah into a harem will not be the last time that he does this. He's going to do it again. And later, his son will do the same thing to his wife. Sometimes the sins of one generation are easily transferred to the next and a pattern of fear rather than faith can become a family trait. Much has been made of Abram selling Sarah into a harem. But whatever we make of it, this treating his wife as if she were property, one thing is clear. Abram acted out of fear. He knows he has no friends in Egypt and that he's a foreigner in a place where foreigners can be easily killed without too many consequences. And we also know that fear is the exact opposite of faith. 
Think back to Genesis 12, verse 2. There God made a promise to make him into a great nation. Now, Abram might have reasoned that the God who made the promise to him would certainly be able to fulfill it. He need not fear. God's purposes in his life were anything but done. And then think of Genesis 12, verse 3, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Indeed, God had promised to use all of his resources as God and put them at Abram's disposal. But these promises now seem so far away, now to a different land. And for those of us who have such difficulty seeing the unseen realm of God's unbreakable promises, the seen realm of famines and threats to our welfare and threats to our own lives, well, those seem ever so real. What Abram could have done was to trust in God's promises. Instead, he's now in a pickle. He's not in the promised land. And how can he become a great nation with more descendants than can be counted when his wife is living in the harem of another man? I think in the dark hours, Abram must have wondered whatever became of God's promises. He started out so well. He had been visited by God himself. He'd built altars. He had arrived, but now, well, now it seems like it was such a long time ago. The vision must have seemed all but dead. But lack of faith is like that. Lack of faith in times of testing, when when famines overwhelm, when storms rage, this leads to human and not divine solutions. Some of you have been there. Let me ask you this question. How do you respond to pressure? I mean, do you panic? Do you pray? Do, Do you work out whatever solutions that you can think of? Or do you go back to the promises? Say you're in business and you're struggling and you can't possibly pay off all your debts and all your taxes. Why not cheat? That's the human solution. Or let's say that you have been sexually impure and now you're pregnant or your girlfriend is pregnant. Why not go for an abortion? Who's ever going to know it's so easy? Or let's say you're late in getting a crucial assignment in at your university and you find out how you can get your hands on another person's paper. Why not simply hand in someone else's work and call it your own? After all, it's just a mark and your class is so competitive, who's going to know? You could throw yourself on the promises of God, however, and seek God by clinging to the truths that he has given you. Or you can constantly rely on yourself. The choice is yours. You've heard the expression, you never know what someone is going through until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, I'm amazed and moved at the number of incredible testimonies we receive from people confronting tragedy. Recently, a close friend lost his brother-in-law in a motorcycle accident and his sister was left critically injured. A neighbor shared the news of their daughter, married and mother of two, diagnosed with brain cancer. The tragedies of life arise without warning, often ending with profound loss and grief. What a blessing that so many would choose to share their stories with us. It really highlights the powerful, hope-renewing message found in the Bible. The daily teaching of the Bible is a privilege of this ministry. Please continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by sending that all-important gift today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online with your donation at backtothebible.ca. Abram's life teaches us that human solutions to problems of faith lead to selfishness, 
hurtful behavior and damage. That's because all human solutions are based upon how to save ourselves and not how to glorify God. Why do you think so many marriages end up in trouble? Human solutions to human problems lead to selfish and hurtful behavior. Instead of gazing at the grandeur of God and His promises, we meditate on our disappointments and those who have wounded us. People are now seen as objects to help us to get what we want. The process doesn't end there. Sin deeply complicates our ability to see the promise. And it's so common, this phenomenon, to see people who were once on fire for Christ now living without any passion at all. You know, some time ago, I was reading of a pastor whose photo was taken in a hot tub with his wife and another naked woman beside him. Later, we found out that this was only the tip of the iceberg as this pastor was using the church finances to become personally wealthy. I wondered as I read this horrible and tragic story, I wondered whether this man started out in ministry with a zeal that said, you know, I'm going to follow Christ. And then bit by bit, as he traded in divine solutions to his problems for human ones, as he began to engage in selfish behavior, that he finally forgot his calling. And that doesn't just happen in pastoral ministry. I can't think of one area in life in which such a thing can happen in marriage, in our relationships with our children, in our jobs, schools, future plans, in retirement. I mean, on and on it goes. When we don't trust God, all things become tainted by sin. The sad thing is that we often don't understand how deeply our lives are becoming ruined. You know, from one perspective, Abram is doing well. Having sold Sarah into harem, his wealth is increasing dramatically. And if not careful, Abram could now have concluded that God was blessing him. I mean, there are, after all, all manner of people who conclude that when things are going well, that's got to be the blessing of God. But Abram would have known better. After all, he had been on a pilgrimage. He had been to a promised land. He had been promised a holy nation and a blessing that would encompass the earth. I mean, what were the extra sheep and donkeys and oxen and camels that Pharaoh had given him next to the things that God had promised him? See, I have a question for you. I mean, what do you think prevented Abram from simply being a casualty, a statistic, another example of someone who started out well and then ended up in a mire of his own sins and finally saw the ruin of his life with God? See, hang on, because the answer to this is going to surprise you. Left on his own, Abram's life would have become a ruin. He would have been a rich man who came from Ur of the Chaldeans with the dream from God, and he would have ended up as a rich man in Egypt, settled, complacent, alone, and devoid of a spiritual future. But what happens? Let's go back to where the story began, and let me reread Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you might remember what we learned about God's promise, God's covenant. A covenant is an agreement initiated by God. When God made a covenant with Abram, he told Abram that if he left his country, his people, and his father's household to go to the land he had promised, that God himself would make him into a great nation and bless him, make his name great, and bless the whole world through him. God, by making this promise, staked his entire reputation on the line. If the promise failed, 
God would be proven to be unreliable and lacking in power and unable to keep his word. So in a real way, and this is so important, Abram's debacle in Egypt is a test not for Abram, but for God. If Abram failed, could God still keep his promise? That's what's at stake here. See, that's where grace comes from in our own lives. You know why God has mercy on his people and rescues them even in their sins? It's because at the cross, God entered into a covenant with us. If you've been authentically converted, here's what God says in the cross. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. See, another way of saying that is that Christ is able to save us in the most complete sense possible, the uttermost, entirely, ultimately. That's not license to sin. In fact, God's people don't sin with abandon. That's one of the ways that we can tell a true follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit in our hearts hates sin. But that's not the point here. The point here is that God has staked his reputation on keeping his promises to his people. And Abram left Haran not because he was convinced that he could take the promised land, but because he was convinced that God had the power to keep his word. That's why I left my former way of life and followed Christ. I remember hearing and believing Romans 8, 38 to 39 where it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's promises never fail. And because of this, God himself intervenes into Abram's failure and turns the course of events. So let's read Genesis 12, 17 to 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And that, and that only, is the reason that Abram returned to the promised land. The reason Abram didn't turn out like his father, Terah, is for this reason. You remember that Terah himself had started on a journey from Ur to the Promised Land, but ended his journey when he came to Haran and didn't go further. The cost of following God was too great, and the rewards of Haran were too seductive. He simply abandoned his pilgrimage and went back to the life he was comfortable with. The only difference between Abram and his father was that God had entered into a covenant with Abram, and God was not going to be unfaithful to his promises. And that, my dear fellow believer, is the very thing that we can count on. When God, through the blood of Jesus, his son, redeems us and calls us his own and bids us to forsake all and follow him, then we know that God's promises will never fail. Heaven and earth will dissolve before one of God's promises fails. All the might of God is behind his word. And once we count on that, we will find that God's ability is greater than our failures or our regresses and our sins. Don't you see it? If the promise depended upon your faithfulness, you would never be faithful unto death. But the promise depends on God, and this and this alone is our confidence. And so God brought plagues on Pharaoh, 
And Pharaoh recognized that the plagues came from God. And so he delivers Sarai back to Abram and sends him out of the country and forces him back to the promised land with all the wealth that he's already given him. Turns out that whoever curses Abram, God will curse him. Pharaoh discovered that. Notice also that God's covenant motivates his pouring out of his grace. I hope you heard that. What motivates God? Your need? No. Your wants? Again, no. Your desires? How about your faithfulness? No, again. God's covenant motivates him. God has directed his behavior towards his word, and his word motivates all God's actions because God is glorified when he keeps his word. And so for us, God's grace motivates us to repentance, cleansing, and renewal. And that's what it did for Abram. He went out of Egypt, passed back through the Negev, and then back to where his tents were set up in the hill country of Bethel, humbled, and he was wiser. He went back to the altar he had built when his heart was so filled with passion for the promises of God, when he had first had that first bit of land to call his own, and there he called on the name of his God. Does this account not give you confidence as well? Heavenly Father, I pray for those who have taken up their cross and followed Jesus. I pray for those who have surrendered their lives into the hands of Christ and those who have lost their spiritual passion and become complacent with what is now their lives. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray, pour out your grace afresh. Remember your covenant with your people and revive us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. On this Remembrance Day, we do well to remember that it is now 100 years since the end of World War I. Those of you who remember your history will remember that it was H.G. Wells, the English futurist writer, who gave a description of that war at its outset. Wells said this already is the vastest war in history. It is a war not of nations, but of mankind. This, the greatest of all wars, is not just another war. It is the last war. And it was with that hope that many thought the First World War would be the war to end all wars. But of course, it was a vain hope. The First World War was an unprecedented catastrophe, even while it gave rise to the modern world. On this Remembrance Day, we want to thank God for our freedoms and remember the brave soldiers who laid down their lives to make freedoms possible. But let us not only remember, but let us reflect and let's learn. Let us also yearn for the day when the last war will be fought and Christ reigns forevermore. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? 
We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life.